Amen. Boy, those are great songs. I enjoyed singing those. Uh, it's good to be with you again this morning, as always. Uh, I have uh, really fallen in love with this church in the short time that, that I've been here. Uh, this is a great church, and uh, you are privileged to be a part of it. And uh, I would have wished selfishly that I could stay with you for a long time, but it doesn't look like that is going to uh, take place. But I'm so happy that things seem to be working out uh, well with uh, Pastor Chris. Uh, by the way, I'm going to tell you, that is unusual to come to this place where you're coming, presenting a, a senior pastor or a lead pastor candidate so quickly. Normally that takes like 18 months and sometimes a couple of years. But uh, it seems like maybe the Lord is getting ready to bless you with a new pastor without having to, to wait that long. Uh, if you're a member of the church, uh, we will be, uh, or you'll be voting on Chris's candidacy today after the service, and that's uh, another good reason to consider uh, membership in the church family, uh, by the way. Uh, and this is an affirmation, okay, it's not an election, we're not electing him, it's, it's affirming a, a choice that the elders are presenting to you. Uh, biblically, the responsibility of church leadership does belong to the elders, uh, the shepherds, God's shepherds that he has appointed in the church. And the elders, I know, have spent a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of interaction uh, with Chris uh, for this role here at CNBC. So believing that he is God's choice to lead this church into the future, uh, they are presenting him to you uh, today at the end of the service for your affirmation. Uh, I am uh, scheduled to come back next Sunday, and that might be my last Sunday with you in the near term, uh, at least. But I'll get a chance to challenge you once more on trusting the Lord as you look to the future. But like any good preacher, uh, I've got probably a couple hundred good sermons to give you, and I can't give them all to you this morning. So uh, I, and I'm not going to have a chance probably in the future. So my mind turned to the Apostle Paul when he had only a very short window of opportunity to, uh, to preach and teach to a church that he had founded in Thessaloniki, Greece. And he chose to focus in on the return of Christ as one of the most important things that he could talk about with that church in the short time that he had. And it was a brand new church uh, full of brand new believers and Paul thought it important to teach them about the return of Christ and the end of the age. And in Paul's letters to this young church in Thessalonica, he taught them even more about the things to come. So that's what I'm going to do with you today. Okay, did my microphone just die? No? Okay, we're good. All right. Well, we are on a collision course with the end of the age, whether you realize it or not. Uh, signs continue to multiply all around us in the world that we are approaching the end of the age, and then, of course, along with that, the return of our Lord. Uh, just a couple of big signs that I'll mention that I see happening right now in the world is that increasingly the world is turning against uh, the nation and the people of, of Israel, and uh, the, day, the scriptures talk about the fact that at the end of the age, Israel is going to stand all alone uh, against the, the nations of the world uh, on the world stage. And that's happening right now. Another huge ongoing development is a gigantic rise in Russian influence in the Middle East. And maybe you may not realize it, but that is another sign of the approaching end of the age. Uh, Russia is clearly seeking to expand their dominance in the region. Under Vladimir Putin, they're rapidly returning to their old imperialistic ways. 
They've seized control in Georgia and in Crimea and the Ukraine, and now they're reaching into Syria, which of course is right next door uh, to Israel. And Russia is the clear leader in a uh, major end times invasion of Israel known as the War of Gog and Magog. Someday, maybe if I ever get a chance to come back, I'll teach you more about that. And every indication is that that event is rapidly approaching. And one motivation for, for that coming invasion of Israel, according to the Bible, is the desire to seize plunder and steal wealth from Israel. Now, Israel, up until relatively recently, hasn't had a whole lot of plunder to steal. In fact, for many years, Israel bemoaned the fact that even though they're in the Middle East and practically surrounded uh, by nations that have vast oil and gas reserves, they couldn't find a drop in Israel. But that has changed, and it's no longer true. And a number of years ago, they discovered a massive uh, gas, natural gas field off the Mediterranean coast in Israeli waters. They call it the Leviathan oil or, or uh, gas field, where the reserves in the ballpark of 40 trillion cubic feet of gas. That's a lot of gas, worth a lot of money, and they're already exporting that to Egypt and other places. And then, maybe you heard this, maybe not, about three years ago, they discovered oil in Israel. Anybody hear about that? Okay, a few people. Okay, not too many of you. Yeah, massive oil reserves up in the Golan Heights, which is kind of a you know, dicey area up there on, on the border, but it's possible that they might have more oil up there on the Golan Heights than Saudi Arabia has, okay? Massive oil reserves they discovered there. But all that will only increase the desire of Israel's enemies to move in and to destroy them and, of course, to seize the wealth, that, that natural gas and oil wealth that they have. And it's just one more event setting the stage for the end of the age that is described for us in great detail in the Word of God. And these are just a couple examples of some of what I see going on in the world today that makes me think the Lord's coming could be very, very soon. And it is so important for us as believers, more than ever before in history, to have a clear understanding of what the Lord tells us about the end of the age, right leading up to his return And we could well be the generation that will be alive to see the return of Christ. And I think that's very possibly the case. I'm waiting for the the rapture of the church. I mean, I'm hoping I get to go that way, okay? But even even if not, uh, uh, it's close. And understanding what the Bible teaches about the end times and about the return of Christ, it's critical, okay? And it's foundational truth for us. And you would think if ever there was a time in human history or in church history when, when believers would understand the details about the end of the age and the return of Christ, it would be right now. Because we might be the generation that lives to see these things take place. But sadly, there's just so much, uh, uh, just, I, I'll say it's like a black spot, okay, like a, a, an area of ignorance in so many people's minds about this. And uh, a lot of people think, well... You know, it's just too hard to understand, you know, and, and why even bother because, you know, nobody really knows for sure uh, what the future holds for us. And I would say that is just not true. And other people think, you know, well, it's really not important. What difference does it make? Why do we need to bother ourselves with this? And I say if that's the case, then, then why does such a huge portion of the Bible get dedicated to teaching us about the things to come? Did you know that someplace around 30% of the Bible that you have in your hands, uh, when it was written, was prophecy? 
talking about future events. Now, many of those events have already come to pass, but obviously many more are, are yet future for us. And I would ask the question, why did God put all this into the Bible if he didn't want us to know it? And what good would it be to anybody if nobody could understand it? Now, a lot of people say, oh, you can't understand that. Well, yes, you can. Most of it is very, very clear. And when God, why would God even waste his breath telling us something that he knew was impossible for us to understand? And on the contrary, this stuff is relevant for every generation and for the generation that will be alive when all these things begin to take place. Oh, my goodness. How can anything get more relevant than that? Well, the church in Thessalonica was well-grounded with what would happen at the end of the age, and they were looking for the return of the Lord. So we're going to start out today looking at the church in Thessalonica and their founding. And uh, before we even uh, get into that, let's get our bearings on where this city is and how Paul happened to be there. Okay, here's a, a map of Greece. And Paul had something we call the Macedonian vision, okay? And when he had that vision, he was in Troas, which you can see, there it is on the slide, okay? Over there in, in uh, what we would call Turkey today. Now, where was Macedonia? Well, it was this whole region over here in the north of Greece where Paul first went. This was the first incursion of the gospel into Europe. The region down below that, by the way, is called Achaia. You'll often see references in the Bible to Macedonia and Achaia. Maybe you wonder where they were. Well, it's, it's Greece, okay? And the first city where Paul went in, in Greece was in Philippi. And while he was in Philippi, Paul and his companion Silas, they were arrested, they were attacked, they were brutally beaten with rods, they were thrown, bruised, and bleeding into prison. They were pretty badly beat up. And then if you remember the story, then there was an earthquake and the, and the prison doors opened and they came out and the jailer and his family came to faith. But then the city authorities came to, to Paul and said, guys, we don't want you around here. Go away, please. Just, just leave us. And so they left and they hit the road again to see where God would take them next. And they traveled down the main road in that region that goes east and west. It's known as the Via Ignatia. Okay, this was kind of Macedonia's version of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. It was a major, major highway uh, connecting all the major uh, cities of Macedonia there in the north. And so Paul and his companions headed down the Via Ignatia, passing the cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia until they came to the city of Thessalonica. And you can see it there in the northwest corner uh, of the uh, Aegean uh, Sea, uh, making it a hub for commerce, both by land and by sea. And several years ago, I had a chance to go to Greece, and we went to Thessalonica, and I took a video. And I'd just like to sit down for a minute and uh, show you this video, and you can see this city uh, with your own eyes. So watch this. All right, this is the city of Thessaloniki. And this surprised me because I always pictured this as a quaint provincial town. And as you can see, it is not that. It's a very large city uh, today and actually has been for most of its history. This city was founded in 315 uh, BC and named after a sister of Alexander the Great. 
and it became uh, the second largest and wealthiest city of the Byzantine Empire in the early Roman period. And it is today still the second largest uh, city in Greece and a lot of uh, uh, wealth uh, flows through the city and always has. Uh, it's a very large port city. You can see some of the ships out there in the bay. And over here to the right, you can see a portion of a very large, uh, important uh, shipping terminal that uh, is active today and has been a major port for, for hundreds, thousands of, of years. Um, the Via Ignatia passes through this uh, city. Uh, that's the same road that the Apostle Paul traveled on when he came to the city of Philippi. And it was the most important east-west trade route in ancient times. Uh, and so when Paul came here in 49 AD, he had left from Philippi, which was way off in this direction. We drove it in about two hours, but it's so maybe 100 miles or so off in that direction over there. And he came here. Now, of course, we are not in Israel. This, is, this was Roman territory, and so you didn't generally find too many Jews, but there were a few Jews here. And uh, unlike in Philippi, where there was no synagogue at all, there was a Jewish synagogue here. And Paul came here and, and uh, reasoned with the Jews, but wasn't here for very long. Just a little bit of note about the history of the Jewish people here. Uh, after the uh, expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, the same year that Columbus uh, discovered America, many Jews came here. And up until the Second World War, there was a large, prosperous Jewish population here, uh, over 60,000 Jews. But most of them were deported to the concentration camps in the Second World War. And so after the Second World War, almost all of those Jews were gone. They were, they were dead. Uh, I want to point out just a couple of things here. Uh, the ancient city walls, uh, you can see way down at the, uh, perhaps you can pick it out there in the center, uh, a white tower and that was the end of the city walls and then you can see coming up through the center of the picture here the city walls these date all the way back from the fourth century AD so they're very old and they come all the way up to where I'm standing so you get an idea of how large this city was even in ancient times and then behind me uh, you can see part of the the city walls coming up and forming this huge uh, tower here right behind me, which is the upper corner of the city walls. And then they, they go on uh, farther and extend behind me here. Uh, quite a large uh, ways, uh, encompassing a very large city. So when Paul came here, it wasn't to some quaint little provincial town. He was going to the big cities of the empire. The city of uh, Philippi, which we've already seen, a very large, important city and now the city of Thessalonica. Again, a very large, prosperous, very important city. So as the gospel came to, to Greece, Paul was looking for the strategic places where he could go and reach the most people where the gospel could then go and spread to other places. So here again, the city of Thessalonica, again, where the gospel first came into Greece after Philippi. All right, well, let me show you uh, a few more pictures. Um, this next picture is uh, part of the old city wall. This is right where, actually where I shot that video I just showed you. And portions of that wall are still in very good condition. 
uh, like here at the uh, upper city gate, and here there's this big, large, defensive uh, tower. And the city walls extend all the way from where I was standing uh, down to that tower. Now, you probably couldn't see it in the video, but I think if you go to the next slide, there, okay, there it is, okay, tiny little thing uh, down there in the water's edge. But here, go to the next slide, there it is. Uh, it's uh, called the White Tower of Thessaloniki. It's a really quite an impressive tower. The, the Thessalonians today are very, very proud uh, of this. It's become kind of the, the symbol of their city, and it's very old. Uh, another impressive uh, city monument is the Arch of Galerius, which was built in the 4th century A.D., okay? We don't have stuff in our country this old, okay? And it's covered with carvings and statues on all sides, telling some of the history of the area. The uh, Roman Forum uh, from Paul's day has been excavated, and you can get an idea at least uh, of what it was like a little bit when he was there. And there are the remains of a small theater there from Paul's day and other bits and pieces that you can find here and there. And when we visited this city, it was a Sunday, and uh, we were, uh, had a chance to worship in this church. It was a Greek Orthodox church. It was built over 800 years ago, and we just kind of stumbled across it by, by chance while a worship service was going on, so we joined them. Now, the service, of course, was all in Greek, so it didn't understand uh, very uh, much of that. But it was interesting seeing uh, the worshipers coming in, and every one of them would bow, and they would kiss the icons before they would come into the church. And they didn't sit down, by the way. They stood for the whole service. And every Greek Orthodox church that we went in was filled with icons, and always one of Mary, uh, very prominent, usually holding a tiny little adult-looking Jesus. It's kind of, they kind of, kind of creeped me out, these pictures. They just look kind of strange. And it seemed to me like most of the time, Mary got a whole lot more attention than Jesus did. The focus was clearly on, on Mary and not Jesus. And the Greeks need Jesus today just as much as they did when, when Paul was there. But, okay, I want to get into the scriptures with you. So grab your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 17, where we read how the gospel came to Thessalonica. All right, so Acts chapter 17, let's, let's read here. All right, verse 1. Now when he had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, now let me just pause there and say that when Paul arrived in this city, the gospel came to Thessalonica with power. But you need to remember that when Paul came here, he was covered with cuts and bruises and, and sores that he had gotten when he was in Philippi, just a little ways up the road. And this was not lost on the Thessalonians. Paul told them, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. But the gospel uh, that Paul made uh, clear to the people, was he made sure that, it, that they knew it wasn't about him, but that it was built on the scripture, and it was focused on Jesus. 
Okay, he went to the synagogue, and for three, go to the next slide for me there, for three Sabbath days, he, okay, there we go, one more. There we go, now we're back on Potter. Okay, the gospel was built on scripture and focused on Jesus. So he went to the synagogue, and for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Okay, that was his authority. And from the scriptures, he proved to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And my guess is he probably spent a lot of time in Isaiah 53. When I'm traveling around in Israel, if I pick up hitchhikers and start talking to them about Jesus, I'll ask them, how do you know when the Messiah comes that it'll be him? And they usually don't have an answer. I said, well, you've got to look at your scriptures. And I'll take them to Isaiah chapter 53. And I think that's probably the same thing that the Apostle Paul did. And his message focused in on the Messiah. And he proved to them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And just as his message was built on the scripture and focused on Jesus, think about that, ours has to be the same way. Built on the scriptures and focused on Jesus. And those are two foundations that are essential for our church today. And God immediately drew many to himself. Uh, some of the Jews trusted Christ along with many devout Greeks. And as he says, not a few of the leading women. And the gospel came with power. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And this church became an example to many others in Macedonia and Achaia. But he wasn't there very long. And his time, his stay in that city was, was cut short. And let's, let's read what happened here, starting in verse 5. It says, But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Uh, you can count on the fact that whenever God is doing something good, that the enemy always takes notice. And by the way, this is one reason why I don't get too worried when troubles hit us as a church. Because if we weren't doing anything right, Satan wouldn't have any reason to attack us. But when the gospel is going forward and things are going well and we're seeking to serve the Lord, that's when Satan says, I've got to do something about this. And that's when Satan attacks. And that's exactly what had happened there for these guys. Okay, but the environment grew hostile. And of course, Paul uh, and his companions had to leave. Now, I want you to do a little Bible study for me. See if you can remember something we read here already. How long was Paul in Thessalonica? Three Sabbaths. Okay, good. Someone, someone knew the answer to that. He was, he was teaching in, this, in the synagogue for three Sabbath days. Now, that's not very long, okay? That's not nearly as long as I've been here with you guys at, at CNBC. Only three Sabbaths. And as I read this, it looks like very soon after that, he had to leave town. Now, there's a little bit of debate about that, but it's clear that he was not in this city for very long, and probably just as little as three weeks. 
And if it was any longer than that, it couldn't have been much longer than that. So in three weeks' time, you think about that. He comes into town. People don't know anything about Jesus. He starts preaching to them about Jesus. They start coming to faith. And then he starts grounding them in the faith. And then he had to leave. Okay? So he's only there three weeks. Some of these people, they were only, they'd come to Christ maybe ten days before he left. Or whatever. Okay? So they weren't there with him very long. But start to finish, three weeks in, in this city. Now that's an important detail especially when we realize the extent of foundational truth that Paul imparted these brand new believers in just a matter of a few weeks' time. Now, what I want to show you is how the doctrine of Christ's return is central to the gospel message, right down to the nitty-gritty details of when and how. And in the brief time that Paul had with these brand new believers, he imparted an amazing amount of truth to them about the things to come and the end times and the return of Christ and the rapture of the church and the antichrist and the great tribulation and, and much, much more. Now, sometimes we tend to think, oh, that's deep stuff. That's deep theology. That's something we'll get into after you've been a Christian for a long time. But not for Paul. Okay, for Paul, this was basic follow-up for new believers, brand new Christians, and he starts talking with them about the return of the age. It was foundational. And it wasn't superfluous. It was important. And he wanted them to get it straight. He wanted them to know it uh, right from the very, very beginning. And after Paul left Thessalonica, he moved on to Berea and then down to Athens and eventually over to the city of Corinth. And in Corinth, he stayed for a longer period of time, about a year and a half, and he started writing letters. And some of the first letters he wrote we're back to this brand new baby church up in, in Thessalonica. And First and Second Thessalonians were written there. They are among, by the way, the very first uh, New Testament epistles to be written. The only one that was earlier, uh, by two or three years, probably was the book of Galatians. Uh, uh, Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, were probably written around A.D. 51. And I want to take just a real quick walk with you through First and Second. Thessalonians, focusing on how Christ's return is central to the gospel message that Paul had to deliver. So, okay, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Now, I'm going to touch on a lot of end times theology this morning as we go through this. I'm not going to have time to go through it in, in depth, or we'll never get out of here in time for lunch. Okay, so I'm just going to kind of do a flyover and, and hit the highlights. But as Paul begins his first letter to the Thessalonians, he makes it clear that we are waiting for Christ to return and deliver us. And look in this book now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, let's start in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, okay, and you know where they are now, that's Greece, Okay, but your faith has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and look at this, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, this is foundational truth. Okay, that just as Jesus came once, he is going to come again. And we're waiting for him right now. And specifically, Paul says, he is going to deliver you from the wrath to come. 
Now that is most likely a reference to that future seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation when God is going to pour out his wrath on uh, unbelieving uh, people here on earth. And the church of Jesus Christ is not going to be here to experience that. We will be delivered when Christ comes before that to take us home so that he will deliver us from that wrath to come. Now, we commonly call that event, that deliverance, the rapture of the church. Okay, it's a little bit different than the second coming of Christ. I'll explain that in a moment, okay? But Paul writes more about the rapture here later in this letter. And Paul alludes to all this because he knows that they already know about it. He's already, in that brief span of time, he was there with this church in that city. He had already taught them about all this. Now, some people, uh, when they... Uh, poo-poo and interest in the dead time and in the end times uh, they, they like to say well what difference does it make well it makes a lot of difference and it's critically important because Christ's return is our motivation for holy living and I want you to look in chapter 3 verse 12 and 13 it says may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all uh, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness when? Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You see, as we look to his coming, it should motivate us to live a holy, blameless life because we want to be ready when he shows up. You know, if you are in a workplace someplace and the boss steps out for a while, you don't want to just immediately put your work down and grab a cup of coffee and a donut and start goofing off because you're not sure when he might walk back in again. And you want to be, you want to at least look like you're working hard when he walks back in the door. Well, we don't know when Christ is coming back, okay? And we don't really want to be found wallowing in sin when he comes back. Well, how embarrassing would that be? And we need to be ready. Now, I want you to jump ahead for just a moment to the end of the book. Look at chapter 5, uh, verse 23. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's return was, was forefront in Paul's mind as he wrote, and he presented the truth of Christ's return as a reason for the Thessalonians to keep their lives blameless before the Lord. Now, one of the clearest passages we have in all of Scripture uh, about the rapture of the church is here in, in this letter. And the rapture should give us both hope and courage. And just, I hope you're familiar with this passage already, but it's in chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It's about the rapture. Now, let me read this for you. This is an exciting passage. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love reading those words when I'm standing in a cemetery at the funeral of a a believer in in Christ, thinking, what will it be like when he comes back? The dead in Christ rise first. Can you see him? Probably so. They're going to rise in real bodies. And then if if we're trusting in Christ... And alive at that same time, we're going to be transformed in a minute, and whoop, up we go to meet the Lord in the air. And I think, wow! I mean, it sounds like a good science fiction movie, okay? But this is true. This is what Jesus told us it's going to happen, and it's exciting. It's exciting to think about it, and it can happen at any time. Okay, it's an imminent event. There's nothing that has to take place before this event comes. And I think we're getting very, very close and it fills me with hope, and it fills me with excitement every time I think about it. And we're supposed to encourage one another with these words as, as, we, as we think about the coming of our Lord. Now, I know we've all had bad days where you probably thought to yourself, oh, Jesus, okay, this would be a really good day to come back, okay? You ever had a day like that, okay? Well, you know, one day he will. And knowing this truth should fill us with hope and with courage. So, with that in mind, we need to be aware and we need to be alert for Christ's return. And I want to show you some more in the same book, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate uh, of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing See, he's telling us we are not supposed to be in the dark about all this. We are supposed to be aware of the times and and the seasons of the Lord's work around us. We're supposed to be alert to what's going on around us in the world, realizing that the coming of the Lord could be close at hand. And we're not supposed to be in darkness about all this, and if we are, it's our own fault. Now, remember, Paul's writing to brand new believers, okay? These people have been just, well, when he was with them for just a matter of days, a few weeks, maybe a couple of years have gone by uh, until they get these letters, but it hasn't been for very long. And, but he told them, he had already told them about all these things. And I want you to look again, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says, now concerning the times and seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves, Thessalonians, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And they knew all this because Paul had taught them this when he was there with them for that brief, brief window of opportunity 
when he was there working among them in that city. And this is foundational theology in the mind of Paul, and it should be in ours as well. Okay, let's move on to 2 Thessalonians, which was probably written just a few months after the first letter. And in this second letter, again, we find a major focus on the return of Christ and the details about the end of the age. And starting just a few verses into the book, Paul reminds them that Christ's uh, return will bring, and if you're writing this in your outlines, you're going to have to write small to fit this in, both deliverance and judgment. And he talks about this starting in verse 5. Okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted <clears throat> as well as to us. Uh, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now this is talking again about the return of Christ. Okay, He's not talking about the rapture now. He's talking about the actual second coming of Christ. And a lot of people get confused over this. The rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are close together, they're related, okay, but they're two different events. At the rapture, Christ doesn't return to earth. He doesn't come all the way down here. He meets us in the sky. We go to meet him in the sky, and then we go back to heaven. At the second coming, he comes all the way to earth. His feet will set down on the Mount of Olives. Uh, he will uh, execute terrible judgments here on this earth. He will set up his millennial kingdom in Jerusalem, in, in a temple there in uh, Jerusalem. He will reign from Jerusalem. And at that time, if there are any believers uh, who have come to Christ during the tribulation period, they will, they will uh, uh, be delivered from, uh, from death at that time. But any unbelievers, they will be, uh, suffer a terrible judgment. So when Jesus comes back, if you know him, it will be wonderful. Uh, but if you don't, be afraid, okay? Be very afraid because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God if you don't have anybody to deliver you. Okay, so the details of the end times events are important. It's so important. And in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he goes into even more detail about what will happen at the end of the age. And we need to understand what the last days will hold. Okay, we need to understand these things. They are important. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay? Now, what is he talking about when he refers here to the day of the Lord? 
Well, in this case, it's referring to that period known as the Great Tribulation. And somebody had told the Thessalonian believers that they were already in it. They were suffering some trials there, and somebody said, hey, guys, you're in the Great Tribulation. He told us about it. We're in it right now. And that confused them because they thought that the rapture was going to come before the tribulation, and so how could they be in the tribulation and still be there? And they were troubled about this, thinking, well, maybe somehow we missed the rapture. But they had, they had not, and they, like us, need to know where the rapture fits in. And so he reminds them in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the... Okay, now the next word is important. I'm going to use the word departure. Okay, unless the departure comes first. Okay, the ESV has the word rebellion there. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Now, this is a really, really interesting verse. And I want to teach you something that my guess is many of you have never heard before. Okay, that word departure. In the ESV, in the NIV, it's translated as uh, rebellion. In the New American Standard, it's translated as the apostasy. If you're using a King James, it's translated as a falling away. Okay? The original Greek word is one that translators have stumbled over for years. Okay? In Greek, it's the word apostasia. Okay? And the core meaning of the word apostasia is departure, okay? Departure, that's really the core meaning of this word. So the question is, okay, a departure, but a departure from what? If it's a departure from obedience, you could call it a rebellion, okay, like some translations put it. If it's a departure from the faith, you could call it an apostasy or, or a falling away, as other translations put it. But what if Neither of those is what Paul had in mind. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute, okay? Paul had already taught them in 1 Thessalonians about a different departure, okay? A departure from earth when Christ appears in the heavens, the rapture of the church. They knew about that departure. So, yes, I, in, in, in this passage here, is he referring to the departure that they, we would call the rapture of the church. And I think he probably is. I think that's probably exactly what he's telling them. He's reminding them, don't worry, okay, you're not going to go into the tribulation. He, it can't happen until the departure comes first. And I think that's exactly what he's saying. I think he's teaching them the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Foundational theology, which he gave them at the very beginning, and he's reminding them right here of where the rapture fits in. And the rapture, after the rapture takes place, that is when the Antichrist is revealed. And we need to know about him. Look again, chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the departure, the rapture, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, I don't have time to say a lot about the, uh, the Antichrist. Uh, he will enter the, the temple of, of God that will be rebuilt and standing in Jerusalem at that time, uh, but his reign will be brief, 
And we need to know how it will all end. And verse 8 tells us. It says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So as bad as he is, okay, the Antichrist uh, won't win in the end, and when Jesus comes back, uh, he will destroy him with a mere breath from his mouth. Now, one thing, a final point I don't want you to miss here that is that all this is foundational even for new believers. Okay, Paul had taught the Thessalonians these things from the very, very beginning. And I want you to go back again uh, to chapter 2. Uh, look at verse 5 here in 2 Thessalonians. It says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? How long was Paul with the Thessalonians? Three weeks, okay? And then they came to faith, were grounded in the Word, and he taught them these things when they were brand new babes in Christ. So this stuff is important. It still is, because Christ's return is central to the gospel message. So, Jesus is coming again. And the question I want to close with is this. Are you ready? Do you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if Jesus were to appear today, that you would be ready to go with him and spend eternity with him in heaven? And what really are you trusting in to get you there. Now, I want to give you the gospel here, real briefly here. It's the same gospel that Paul taught to the Thessalonians. Eternal life is a gift. It's a free gift, okay? We can't earn it, okay? We can't deserve it. Being good will never get you there. And we can't earn it because of this worldwide problem known as sin. And we all have it. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We've all sinned, and we cannot save ourselves because we can never be good enough for God on our own, which being good enough would have to be perfect. And none of us can be that way. So there must be a completely different way to gain eternal life. Now the truth is that God is both loving and just. Okay, he loves us. He doesn't want to punish us. But God is also just, and he has to punish sin. So he sent Jesus, who is both God and man, and Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross and, and rose from the dead, to pay the penalty for our sins and purchase a place in heaven for us, which he offers to us as a free gift. Now, not everyone receives this gift because the gift is received by faith. And faith is the key that unlocks the door to eternal life. And saving faith is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Now, my question for you is, are you completely sure that you have eternal life? And if you're not completely sure, would you like to be sure? And I want to tell you this morning that you can be sure by simply putting your trust in Christ right now. You have to turn from yourself. You have to turn from anything else you're trusting in, being a good person or anything else, and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone and in what he has done for you and receive him as your Savior and as your Lord. And if that's what you want, and if you're not sure, I don't want to let you out of here this morning without giving you an opportunity to make sure. So I'm going to lead in a closing prayer here in just a couple of seconds. And if you really are not sure that you're ready and you'd like to be sure, just pray along with me. You don't have to do anything out loud. You don't have to stand up. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything like that. But just in your heart, put your trust in Jesus alone for eternal life. All right, would you pray with me right now?
Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to be with you in heaven forever. But I know I'm a sinner. And I know I can never be good enough on my own. Thank you for dying on that cross for me. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for taking my punishment. I receive you right now as my Savior. I put my trust in you and no more in myself or anything else. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Lord, make me the kind of person you want me to be. Thank you, Lord, for giving me eternal life. And I pray in your own precious name, Jesus. Amen. It may seem like a very simple thing to pray a prayer like that and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But if you did that and you were sincere in your heart before the Lord, he's just caused you to be born again. I would love to hear about it. You can talk to me afterwards if you put your trust in Christ or maybe one of the elders or somebody. But I would encourage you to tell somebody if you've put your trust in Christ.